Everyone, would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation? Uh, we're in the first chapter, just beginning our new series. We're going to be studying verses 4 through 8 this morning, but I'm going to read in just a minute uh, verses 1 through 8. Last week we learned that the storyline of Revelation reveals how the triumph of the Lamb, the triumph of Jesus Christ, provides assurance. So I just even now begin thinking, where do I, where am I lacking in assurance that God's in control of certain aspects of my life? Uh, he gives assurance to and power, strength for, for weak, tempted, and suffering Christians to persevere in their faith persevere in their mission for Christ. It's a, it's a book of hope, you guys. You know, it's, there's a lot of stuff in it. There's a lot of stuff that, that is, is sobering. We don't want to back away from that. Fearful. But it's a book of hope. It's a book of worship. It's a book, it's a book of warfare. And it's a book of victory. Let's don't forget that. We learn that it's an apocalyptic book, meaning that it reveals the testimony of Christ's victory at the cross and his rule over all things. It, it reveals the war that the devil wages against us day by day. And it reveals Christ's final victory over the devil, over all evil, over all suffering forever. It's a book of prophecies that have already been fulfilled. In, in Christ Jesus. And it's a book of prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. It's a pastoral love letter. <clears throat> it's a pastoral love letter to churches that are ready to give up or give in to temptation and persecution. It's a book of symbols, signs, and pictures that are as divinely inspired as any other part of the Bible. But the book itself tells us that those symbols are not to be interpreted literally, but that we are to learn and apply the inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient truths that they point us to in all of Scripture. That's why I say, you know, I make, and some of you, I hope most of you don't even have a clue what I'm talking about, but when I was a young believer, there was talk about where Revelation talks about locusts with men's faces and and so what I was taught that that meant is that John didn't have words to describe what God was showing him and what really God was showing him was attack helicopters coming from a communist nation um, coming to wage war and that's what I was taught I was taught well remember this book is written to people God loves in that first century this book was written to those early believers in the seven churches we're going to talk about today. God is, is revealing things. He's not, can you imagine, how does that help me in Ephesus? Oh, great. Oh, it's, it's locusts with men's faces. What it really means, it's attack helicopters. <laughs> how does that help me in the year AD 90? How does that help me? It helps. This book is a book of help. Okay, so hopefully you kind of see why we make some point about that. It's a book that speaks of the end times, not merely in reference to the specific time that Christ comes again, but to the times we are currently living in. The end times are between Pentecost and Christ's second coming. That's the end times. And it's a book of blessing to all those who read it. 
who hear it and obey it. So I've got three quotes right at the very beginning, and these are the only quotes in the sermon. Hang on just one second. I hope you'll keep these quotes just in your Bible, maybe regularly, for God's divine intent in giving us the book of Revelation. Um, So let's begin looking at these quotes. As John stands at the beginning of the end times, that's a huge statement. He is to record both what is already happening around him and the things which will continue to unfold as the end times proceed. Thus, the scope of Revelation deals with all the events of world history commencing with the death and resurrection of Jesus and concluding with his final return. The events recorded in it will recur throughout human history and thus remain relevant to readers of all times, though they also point to a final climax at the time of the Lord's return. That's G.K. Beale and David Campbell in a, in a wonderful commentary just called Revelation, a shorter commentary. It's, <laughs> it's because they wrote Revelation, this really long commentary, and somebody said, hey, could you write one for dummies? I mean, what is it like? Like, like algebra for dummies or whatever, you know. Um, so it's a great, great resource. Here's another. The urgency of receiving revelation is made clear by the final words of John's prologue, for the time is near. One of the lamentable tendencies in the study of revelation is to believe that it focuses only on the return of Christ to end history. It is true that revelation foretells a great event that Christians must ultimately face. But this is first a reference as to what Christians at that time were also facing. But that great event is not here referring to the second coming, at least not first of all. Rather, the event that in Revelation's view is soon to arrive is the persecution of the church. To be sure, Christ's coming is near, either through the help he gives us now, or in his final coming to end all history. But John's appeal to the urgency of his writing pertains to his church's obedience to the commands and promises of Christ in the face of violent worldly persecution. Every Christian can be blessed now. John promises that through facing persecution and beset with weakness and sin by hearing and keeping the saving testimony of the Bible and uniquely the book of Revelation. That's Richard Phillips in his commentary. Our interpretation, this is from last week, and I had several of you say that this was so helpful, and I think it's just such good foundational material. Our interpretation of Revelation must be driven by the difference God intends it to make in the life of his people. I said that last week, God intends this Testament scripture or Greco-Roman society, trace every interconnection and illumine every mystery in this book. And yet we were silenced by the intimidation of public opinion, terrorized by the prospect of suffering, enticed by affluent Western culture's promise of security, comfort, and pleasure. Then we would not have begun to understand the book of Revelation as God wants us to. 
always, in every age and place, the church is under attack. Our only safety lies in seeing the ugly hostility of the enemy clearly and clinging fast to our champion and King Jesus. And we all say, Amen. Amen. And so our main point this morning is this. Our Lord Jesus not only helps us to understand the end times, oh, I think even better. He empowers us to stand strong at all times. So let's read the text this morning. Revelation chapter 1, we'll begin with verse 1 and go through verse 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his aid that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking you to pastor our hearts with your words, but you can help us stand strong at all times. And Lord, there's not one of us in here that there's not some aspect of our life that we're feeling weak in. Oh God, we need this book to help us stand strong. God, use what we're going to learn today to help Dave Sheffield stand strong in the face of his his dad's passing away this week. God, for all those who are at home sick, would you use this book to help them stand strong? And not just fight the illness, but to fight the good fight of faith. Lord, for all those who are first responders in our city who who have never been so stressed, oh God, would you use this book to help them stand strong at all times. We love you, and we need you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, verses 4 and 5 give us some of the main characters in Revelation. And that includes John the Apostle, seven churches of the Roman provinces, of the province of Asia Minor, which is, is for us modern-day Turkey. And so it's not only John, uh, it's not only the churches, it's also the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
It's also lurking in the background, we find the Roman emperor of that time, Domitian. Just a couple of reminders about the Apostle John. One of, of Jesus' three closest disciples was John. Uh, John 19 actually calls John the disciple whom he loved. Other, some commentators think that that doesn't mean that, that, that nah, 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 I'm the favorite kind of thing. It wasn't a hat. They thought that, that in many ways John most reflected the love of Christ, like the way Jesus loved. Uh, pretty cool. So it gives you a sense of the heart of the person that God is using to write this letter, a very much a pastor's heart, caring for the people he loves. God used him, uh, God inspired him to write the gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. Um, if Revelation was written around the year AD 90 or 95, that would have been about the last year of Emperor Domitian's reign. And John would have been over 80 years old. So this is in the latter years of both this, this ruling emperor as well as this distinguished man of God. In the latter part of his life, I didn't know how many of us know that it's, it's understood that John pastored the church in Ephesus, which was, of course, one of the seven churches. John understood what it meant to share in Christ's sufferings. We'll learn more about this next week. But he was persecuted for following Christ. He was punished by exile to the island of Patmos, which caused him to be even more compassionate for the suffering of believers. It was also written to seven churches. John's letter was sent to Ephesus, and then it went on a route to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So why these churches? Well, you know, there were more than seven churches. There were certainly more than seven churches. Why these seven? Were these the worst apples in the, in the barrel? What, what, what was the deal here? Well, the number seven in the Bible is a symbol for completion, for fullness. Something that is universally true. It's, it's all-encompassing. That, that, that began right at the very beginning with the seven days that, that led to the completion of creation. Uh, the week of the creation week. So John wrote actual letters to these seven churches. But what, the reason it's seven churches is that this message to those churches were messages for all churches. So we'll find Sovereign Grace Church in the message to these seven churches. Isn't that kind of cool? I hope that gives you this anticipation. God, I want to, as much as I possibly can, I want to be with the saints when they gather because the letter to the churches of Revelation is a letter to our church too. And I want to be with my brothers and sisters when we hear it. So it's, a, it's a letter to churches that are living during the end times. That's, that began, as we said in that quote, that, that John was standing at the beginning of the end times. So they, they have to deal with end times issues just like we do. We have much in common with these churches. That's why... It was seven churches. That's what God is communicating. You're in here. Your story is in here. So I hope that kind of just makes you lean in even, even more. Um, it addresses the ongoing, increasingly intensifying conflict between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan at any time during the end times. And John ends each letter to each church by writing this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, so what he's saying to one, he's really saying to all of them, including us.
We're going to see that John is writing to Christians who had either faced or would face persecution. So, as I mentioned, uh, Domitian was the emperor at the time. He didn't bring a lot of persecution early in his rule, but as he grew older, he seemed to also grow in depravity. He seemed to grow in his ego and his pride. He became more tyrannical. He was immoral and insecure. Sounds like a lot of our times, doesn't it? He seduced his own niece. He killed people just for making jokes about them. Christianity was growing, and so was Domitian's pride. At the end of his life, he demanded emperor worship. He required people to call him Lord and God. Nice guy, huh? Of course, that was the flashpoint for increasing persecution of the church. By the year 113, a Roman governor in Asia Minor named Pliny the Younger had written a letter to the emperor that replaced Domitian, Trajan, and he asked him, what should we do about this, this, this infestation of Christians? They saw Christians like we see COVID, this infestation, this pandemic. It's, it's ruining our world, these Christians. And you know what Trajan's answer was? If they don't recant, kill them. And make them prove their sincerity by making them worship an image of me. And then make them curse the name of Christ. See, it's easy to lose hope and compromise your faith, isn't it? Under those conditions. It's easy to lose hope and compromise your faith and seek temporary satisfaction in the arms of the world. When you look around you and all you see is evil in leadership. It's, isn't it demoralizing? I mean, how much have you listened to just this week? That you started the day feeling a little bit peppy. But as the day went on and you're hearing about this legislation and what this is getting, you just feel like this by the end of the day. When you, when you just see that there's this crushing press increasingly toward immorality, attractive idolatry. So there's crushing immorality and attractive idolatry. There's suffering and there's persecution. But here's, here's what it's, what's even more profound, guys. And this is, there's, a, there's a lesson for parents in this. Even before the persecution, these churches had been growing in spiritual apathy. They were regularly making growing compromises to their faith and increasingly tempted to conform to the world's values and not be conformed to Christ. They were losing their grip on sound doctrine and gospel centrality, and that caused a sharp decline in their passion to make disciples of all peoples from every ethnicity. So with persecution drawing near, the chief problem of these churches was that they were apathetic toward the things of God. So here we are talking about, about uh, Domitian and Trajan and persecution and cursing Christ. But there was a worse problem that was going to make that problem almost impossible to bear. And that's apathy. It's apathy. We're to learn the word lukewarm. They were apathetic toward the things of God. I'm just kidding, because there's so much of my life, my heart that I see in this places where I've grown weary and I, and I just, in some ways, apathetic. 
I'm not broken by the things that break God's heart. I get upset at the president and I don't pray for his conversion. So much, so much apathy, so much lukewarmness in my heart. It's a wake-up call, guys. It's a wake-up call for complacent Christians who don't realize that the trials and temptations and persecutions are drawing near. So here's where parenting comes in. Isn't good parenting not just teaching, reading, writing, and arithmetic? It's wanting to, our kids to grow in maturity because they're going to they're gonna face a lot of garbage when they grow. Isn't that parenting? Isn't that what really parenting is? That's what pastoring is too. That's what this book is doing for our souls. God sees the big picture and he realizes that in the condition that you're in, if you can't run with the footman, how are you going to run when the horses are running? They were tempted to give in to thinking that what they they most lacked and most needed was happiness that the, only the world could give them. So what are you lacking right now? What are you aware that you just lack? And it's tempting you to believe that either God doesn't love you or he's not powerful enough to give you what you think you need. That's what's underlying this, isn't it? Or, or you know God loves you, but you don't know that he's powerful enough. Either that we don't think he's powerful enough or he loves us enough. Isn't that the, the, the underlying struggle? And boy, Satan comes in with his lies, doesn't he? To try to turn us away from the one who most loves us. Because I lack what I need to be happy or because I have ongoing pain. So I, I know what I'm lacking. Some of you know what you have. It's not, something, it's not something you're lacking. It's something I have. And it's just suffering. I, my marriage is just my problems in marriage just, just get worse. My sickness gets worse. Our, our, our culture seems to be getting worse. This pain and sorrow. And I'm tempted to believe that God doesn't love me. Or he doesn't have the power to help me. I came across something that I think will especially. I just, ladies, the, the, the Lord really this week in prayer, just, the ladies of our church been on my heart, and I hope this helps, particularly for for moms. But I I read something that I think will tie right back in and really make the rest of this this lesson even more poignant. Is written by a lady named Abigail Dodds, is in Desiring God this week. She's a writer for Desiring God. Listen to her story. I loved the doctrine of God's sovereignty, in theory, at least. I loved that my God was so powerful and big and in charge. When I saw others go through difficult circumstances, I sympathized with them. But I also had a settled sense that God had a plan born from his love. It wasn't until I was up against my own difficult circumstances that the thought flashed in my mind, perhaps God was working something not good in my life. As a young wife and mom, I never considered the possibility of miscarrying. So when it happened, I was shocked, listen to her words, that my womb could become a place of death. 
as I faced the loss of our little one, I wasn't tempted to doubt God's power, but his love. I I knew he could have kept our baby alive, so why didn't he? Yet Romans 8 was there to keep me grounded, reminding me that not even death could separate us from his love. As the years rolled on, God's sovereignty over all things was the buoy that kept me afloat in every season. I was learning to trust God's love as he carried us through job loss, babies received, and one lost, moves, and new ministry. Yet it was the birth of our youngest son that brought the deepest challenge to my trust in God's power and plans. With our son's arrival, we faced uncertainty regarding his future, a future that in the best case would involve disability and health difficulties. During the chronic trials that ensued, including our son's sleep disorder, seizures, and eating difficulties that involved years of almost daily vomit, a different sort of temptation occasionally crept in, the thought that God might love us, but that maybe he couldn't help us. Night after night after night, year after year after year, we would pray for relief, but relief didn't come. I was looking for God's power to come in the form of physical relief from our trials. I was tired. I was worn out. I wanted to be free from the difficulties of nighttime G-tube feedings and regular vomit cleanup. If God answered those prayers, I reasoned, that would be a sign of his power. Yet which is more difficult? To change someone's circumstances from hard to easy or to change the person in the circumstances from floundering to flourishing despite it all? As Paul testifies, God often manifests his power through our weaknesses. It was Paul's thorn in the flesh that occasioned God's sovereign power resting upon him. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God's power is ours when we entrust to him our weaknesses. The sovereign power of God rests on his people not to remove their thorns, but to teach them of a stronger power, the power of God that contents us with trials so long as we have Christ's spirit. Romans 8.28 is a precious truth to me. Knowing that God is working all things for my good has been the dearest and deepest comfort even and especially in the darkest seasons. God is working all things for my good when our son is in the hospital again, she says, or when my husband is dealing with chronic pain still, or when betrayal and slander touch my life or the lives of those I love. It's a reality that keeps my heart whole even as it's breaking. What? Keeps my heart whole even when it's breaking and my mind clear even in the fog of confusion. He is good and he is strong. Not one thing happens to us apart from his perfect plan. God's sovereign love and power mean that we can trust him now and forever. You've just gotten kind of, you know how in college you you went to classes but then you'd have a lab. 
This was just a, a lab of what the rest of this text is going to show us today. So, so here's my question to you. So what, what do you tell someone who feels weak and ready to give up or give in? You know, a lot of people are saying now, well, don't tell them scripture. That's really harsh if you tell them God's word. Listen, we should listen. We shouldn't just blab. We should be listeners. We should weep with those who weep. But what other hope does the sufferer have except the word of God? So let's see what God does when we look to him and see what he says to people who doubt his love, doubt his power, ready to give up and ready to give in. So do you remember our main point? He's not just wanting to help us understand the end times. He's wanting to empower us to stand strong at all times. So here's the first thing he says. Stand strong in the sovereign power of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Discouraged Christians need a continuing reminder of the sovereign power of God. And we see that right at this introduction. So stand strong in grace and peace. So he says, grace and peace to you from God, who, who is and was and who is to come. Aren't you glad that peace is, is not because you earn it or deserve it? So, so, I mean, today, isn't there somebody here who just almost had forgotten, what is, it, what is peace really like? I go to bed worried, I wake up worried. I've forgotten what the peace of God is really like. Wasn't well, it good? It comes by grace, not by your efforts. Peace is a comprehensive term for the blessings that God gives by His grace. It means to be whole again. It means to be content, to, to have strength and, and wisdom. And of course, grace is the undeserved favor God gives His people to believe in Christ, to repent of sin. And also describes the power he gives them to grow in the character and the mission of Christ. So where does that grace and peace come from? Well, here's who it comes from. It comes from the God who is. The God who is. He's ever living. He's ever present as the King of Kings. He's ruling over all things right this second. All circumstances, all devils. He's sovereign over every detail right here, right now. So stop. Would you dare to believe that this morning? Would you dare to believe, God, I believe that. That right this second, you are the God who is in control over all things. And because I've trusted you as my Lord and Savior, you're the God who is lovingly in control of my life. This is rooted in the words that God first spoke to Moses from the burning bush. Moses asked for God's name, and God said to Moses, remember, I am that I am. I am who I am. Proverbs 21.9, I love this because it's just kind of is a graphic demonstration of how in control God is. Remember, it talks about that, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Guys, memorize that phrase. When you're watching whatever news source you listen to, man, that one ought to just come up right away for you. The heart of the president is the hand of the Lord. 
and God turns it as he wills. How can we know that? Well, right just close to that, Caesar Augustus had decided, I think I'll take a census of the population. Oh, yeah. You think that just came from you, Caesar Augustus? No, God held the heart of the king in, the, in, his, in his mighty hand. And he did that to bring Joseph and Mary from Nazareth, Nazareth to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy. But he wasn't just the God who is, he's the God who was. He's always been. He's eternal. He's not created. He's without beginning, without end. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of what he makes. He gives an unstoppable plan of redemption since the fall. And he's total, in total control of history. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. You saw that in the pagan Persian king Cyrus when we were studying through Daniel. Suddenly just being disposed. This pagan king just suddenly gets nice and says, hey, Israel, you can go back now. <laughs> yeah, right. Can you imagine? Hitler. You know, I'm just talking. Listen, this is, you guys all, we're done. We're done. It's because God is overruling. He's the God who is. He's the God who was. And he's not just in control of, of all of history. He's in control of your history. Now, will you stop and believe that? Will you stop and believe that? That's what this, I think, Josh Graves told me the other day, he, he said, you know, as we're talking about the things of the Lord, there are just times we shouldn't keep talking. We should, Josh said, we should pivot in prayer. <laughs> or pivot to prayer, pivot in two. Either one. <laughs> These are those times where I think we, that's what we do. I believe that, Lord. Help me believe it more, right? Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And he's not just who is and who was. He is to come. He's ruling over the future. His future grace. I, love, I don't know if John Piper invented that word or if he got it from Edwards or whoever. But his future grace is just as amazing. His future grace is just as amazing as his past and present grace. And he is unstoppable in his plan to finish what he began. We sang about that this morning. Revelation 17, 17, we're going to get to that. So here's this, this thought of, of what's going on currently, but also in the future, that God is going to put it into the hearts of evil kings and corrupt religious leaders, the things that will only cause his purposes to be fulfilled. We'll study that. So in other words, we don't have a small God. We don't. We used to sing a song. Ellen, you remember that song? I have made you too small in my eyes. Oh, God. I can't remember the rest of it. But <laughs> oh, God. That's what, that's, please help me. That's, I don't know what it says, but please help me. And so people who are tempted to give in or give up need to see a fresh vision of God's sovereign power. Seeing him on the throne gives fresh strength and hope to stand strong in grace and peace. Isn't that cool? That's so cool. Verse 8, he, 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 he does this at the end. We'll just toss it in now. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last. I'm the Alpha and Omega. It, it means, well, later on in Revelation, he actually says he's the first and last, but it's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, meaning God is control, we could say this way, from A to Z and every other letter that, that you could confront along the way. The quote is from Isaiah 44, 6 and 7. And, and nine times in the book of Revelation, John calls God Almighty. 
Maybe you need all nine of those this morning. Oh, I need to remember that. This is, this is the one that brings grace and peace to us, to stand strong at all times in Christ, to endure, to persevere in faith, to overcome evil, and to share in the triumph of the Lamb. But there's more. Stand strong in the grace and peace from God the Spirit. There's a reference here to the Holy Spirit. It talks about the seven spirits of God. The number seven, again, representing fullness or completion. In this case, it's representing the seven spirits are saying to us, the Holy Spirit is divine. He's the second, he's the third person of the Godhead, of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit brings grace and peace to us. The, the church needed grace to persevere in their faith in the midst of tribulation, especially the pressure to compromise like we've already talked about. And in the midst of such horrible pressure, they needed the incredible peace of God that the Holy Spirit gives to those who love him. John is actually referring to Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. We'll look at this more as we study uh, later on in, in other sermons. But during the time of the rebuilding of the temple, after the exile, the people were just discouraged that the temple was ever going to be completed. There was just too much temptation to draw them away from the work. And there was too much persecution that threatened them. So they had this vision of seven lamps, really from the lampstand that would be in the temple. And it represented the work of the Spirit, which gives grace for the building of the temple. This, this, I just gave you one verse out of that section. How about this? So this is the context. Some of us know this verse by heart. But here's the context. He says, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How do you stand strong at all times in grace and peace? By the work of the Holy Spirit. And just as, as they were discouraged about the building of the temple uh, in Jerusalem, do you know you're the temple too? You know, our church family, corporately, we are a temple. We're, we're one part of the temple that is the church of Jesus Christ. Uh, where are you discouraged about the way the temple, your life, calling, calling yourself a temple? Where are you discouraged that, man, I see more rubble than construction? I, <laughs> the guys who know me will totally believe this. I spent a summer in college uh, Building houses. Uh, really, my job sh description should have been house destroyer, not house builder. The first day, I'm sitting there, I've never done any of this stuff, and I'm using a saw, one of the things that goes, like a round one. <laughs> I see, that tells you, right? And, and so I'm, you know, and I, I got a couple, I marked, I, I put my marks, I measured, and I put my marks. <laughs> I can't even, I don't, I would just, I want to look at Alan, but I can't even look at him right now because, because um, uh, he knows this about me. So here I am, and that sounds cool. I got to say, if you need a little fresh sense of masculinity, just, not that, that women, I don't know if women like that sound too. I don't know. Anyway, um, so I cut it and I'm feeling victorious. And all of a sudden it quit running. So I'm looking down and it's still plugged in. What in the world? And I'm noticing the cord just got really shorter. <laughs> I cut the cord in half. 
you guys, where are you feeling like that's what's happening in your spiritual life? The way I, you feel like you're more a temple destroyer than, than really being built up in the Lord. Well, God wants to give you help through the Holy Spirit. And then there was this other part of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's talked about the spirit that was, would rest upon Jesus or the spirit of the Messiah. It's in your notes, Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit, here's the sevenfold, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Oh, aren't we so glad for the, the work of the Holy Spirit to help us stand strong at all times in grace and peace. And how about God the Son? He goes to Jesus next, and he calls Jesus our prophet. And it's not written exactly there, but he calls him the faithful witness. And what he's doing here is Jesus is perfectly revealing God and his salvation to our sinful world. Jesus is the one who perfectly reveals it. God spoke before, we learned this in Hebrews, through the prophets, but now he speaks to us in his Son. He proclaims the truth that salvation is in no other name. And it's a message so worthy and so costly, he was willing to die to deliver it to us. And he will give us grace and peace so that we can be faithful witnesses for him too. So Jesus is our faithful witness, our prophet. Jesus is also our priest. He, the, the, the reference would be the firstborn from the dead. And you can see how I got the, the priest out of this because the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits that guarantees that you, your body will rise on that day. You will, you will have a resurrected body like the body of Jesus. It's the guarantee. He's the first fruits, and there's many others to come who are followers of him. We will have a resurrection like, the, like his. No more death, no more suffering, no more temptation. Romans 8.34 is, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now you see the priesthood coming in. But it was, it, it was all of it. He was the priest who gave his own life as a sacrifice. He rise, rises from the dead. He ascends to heaven. He's right now praying for us with our temple projects, right? <laughs> with, with our cutting the cords in half. He's our high priest and he's our king. He's the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, Psalm 89, 27 is really where he's coming from here. There's so many Old Testament references. Guys, we hope that you're going to learn a ton of your Old Testament through the book of Revelation. Uh, in, in Psalm 89, he calls him my firstborn, the most exalted over the kings of the earth. And Jesus doesn't just rule over his people. He rules over every king and kingdom on earth and demonic oppressors around them. So I want to say a word. If, if, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, um, you know, you may be, may, I, think, I think unbelievers can kind of do this cop out to think, well, I don't believe he's the Lord and Savior, thus he's not the Lord. Oh no. You may not believe he's the Lord, but he's the Lord. And every knee shall bow. Amen. 
and every tongue shall confess that he is Lord. Either because you received the love of Jesus and the death he died for your sins, or you continue to do this, there will come a day that you'll realize he was Lord all along and what a fool I was to deny him. So what does attempted, doubting, hurting, persecuted church need to stand strong in the power and grace and peace of the Father? Oh, they need a fresh sighting of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. What else do they need? Second point. These last points are much shorter. Stand strong in the saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was telling Eric, I just got so excited this week about this. Because I think this is supposed to be the way this hits our hearts. I think this, we're supposed to be going, holy, holy, holy. He's the God who is, who was, and who is to come. He's God the Father. He's God the Son. He's God the Holy Spirit. He's in total control over all these things. There's no doubt he's powerful. And then the next passage and he loves us. I think that's the way it's supposed to hit you. And he loves me. Listen, when somebody tells you God loves you, it should freak you out. I think our world, in our self-esteem world, we got to kind of go, oh, self-esteem. I think we would go, well, God loves you. And people go, well, why wouldn't he? Let me count the ways. <laughs> and he loves us. How do we know? Well, the Bible told us so, right? But the cross tells us so. So John, do you notice here, he actually turns from just writing to worshiping. <laughs> because he says, to him who loves us. It's in the present tense, so if you're kind of thinking, oh, maybe, maybe I, I believe he used to love me, but man, I've been drift, drifting and disobeying like crazy. No, still present tense. He loves us because of the cross. He freed us from our sins by his blood. The foundation of our grace and peace is at the cross. The penalty for sin is paid. The power of sin is broken. And there will one day be an absence of sin's presence as promised. He gives us a new identity. He makes us a kingdom and priests to his God. That's what Exodus 19, 6 said would happen in the future. And now Revelation says it has happened. That God's people are a kingdom of priests and kings. The, the kingdom part of this, if you, I, don't, I, I came out of the prosperity stuff years ago and Oh, you're a king's kid. And, you, and it, was, it was like it fostered almost this entitlement. Yeah, I'm a king's kid. <laughs> that means I should get the best and I should make the most money and I should have the best health and I should... No, you're a king's kid. And you know what that means? It means that he gives you strength to endure trial. That's what it means. In the same way Jesus kept his eyes on the Father. That's what it means to be a king's kid. I have the strength to keep my eyes. 
Well, how did that lady say that my heart was whole even when it was broken? My mind was clear even if life was fuzzy. Because I am in his kingdom. I'm one of his children. And what about the priest? Well, actually, that's, the, that's, that's part of our evangelism. That's part of our representing Jesus to the world. We're a royal priesthood, which means there are going to be times that we have to sacrifice and suffer like he did for us. His is saving. Ours is just representing. But it's a way we give the message we do, we, what is wrong with us? We want to give gospel message and not get dirty. We don't want to get down and wash people's feet and, 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 and get down and where the things are hard or where they spit on us or whatever it is. And no, he says, you're a royal priesthood. Represent my sacrifice. Represent my suffering. Well, I'm doing that, Lord, but I'm feeling weak. Well, yes, but you're also a kingdom. And I'm giving you power to do that and not give up doing that. So do you see all of this is being seven to those seven churches? But isn't it just really current for us too? So thankful for that. And then he ends it by saying, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Eric, you want to bring the team up? The last part is this. Stand strong in the satisfying promise that Christ will come again. We'll, we'll hit this. That's why I'm just going to give a glancing blow to this because so much of our study is going to talk about this. But verse 7 is a reference to Daniel 7 and the reference to the coming with the clouds. It's also a reference to Zechariah 10:12, talking about every eye will see him who he pierced. It was partially fulfilled right at the cross. Do you remember? So, so he's just watched Jesus be pierced. You remember the centurion, the Gentile, who says, surely this is the Son of God. There's debate amongst the scholars. Was the wailing a wailing of repentance and faith? Was the wailing of, of lost opportunity? Well, right there, I think it was a, a wailing of, I can't believe he would love us like this, that he loves me like this. And I think there's an ongoing fulfillment between Pentecost and the second coming of Christ where Jesus keeps coming through his gospel, doesn't he? Every time we share his gospel, Jesus keeps coming. He keeps coming. He keeps showing his nail-scarred hands. He keeps showing the depth of his love. He keeps saying it. He keeps showing it again and again. And some harden their hearts and resist. And some break down in glad tears of repentance and faith because he softened my heart to love him and I want to follow him forever. And then there is going to be a grand fulfillment on that day when he comes again. Tears of joy for those he saved. Right? Aren't we going to be so glad? And probably tears of regret that will last forever for those who rejected him. Those of you who have been around a while, you, you remember a lady named Pat Ellis. Daniel, you, you remember Pat? Her family had gone through a lot of hard things. Her son-in-law, Mike, was one of our dearest friends. He was, he was kind of a prototype of deacon ministry in our church. He needed a lung transplant, and he... He was at the hospital and being prepped for the surgery. There'd been a lung found, and he died before they could get him to the operating table. 
And Miss Pat had a lot of other sorrows and heartaches as she got older. And I went to visit her one day, so be thinking about this. He's coming in the clouds, Miss Pat said. And it, I want you to think about the grace and peace that she was living in, she said. Billy, oh, she's the sweetest. Billy, doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is coming again on the clouds? And I said, yes, Miss Pat, it does say that. And then she said, it sure has been cloudy lately. <laughs> Would you stand with me? What do we tell people who are hurting and weary and weak? Well, we listen and we weep with them, but we take them to his word. And we remind them that he's given us grace and peace to stand strong at all times. We're going to invite you to, to pray. I, I, don't, I don't know how this doesn't really just cover all of our hearts in some area of where are you doubting? Where have you just not been very aware of God's love because of, you're more aware of the stuff you have and that you're going through? Or you're, more, you're not aware of his love because you're really aware of what you don't have? And today, God has just stepped full, just front and center, hasn't he? To say, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden. And I'll give you grace, and I'll give you peace, and I'll give you rest for your souls. Becky and Kenzie, would you guys come up and be ready up here? These precious ladies are prayer warriors, and that's just one option for you. If you want to come and actually pray with someone, just, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That might be something that, that would, uh, would be appropriate, timely for you to pray. The elders are always available. Lord bless you and keep you. Eric, would you close us after you sing?